This podcast is a production of Open Pediatrics, a free online resource for health professionals' education. Visit openpediatrics.org for more. Welcome to the World Shared Practice Forum. I'm Dr. Jeff Burns, Chief of Critical Care at Boston Children's Hospital and Professor at Harvard Medical School. I'm very pleased to have with us today, Dr. Rick Malley. Dr. Malley is a senior physician in the Division of Infectious Disease at Boston Children's Hospital and Professor of Pediatrics at Harvard Medical School. He is an internationally recognized expert in pediatric vaccines. Rick, it's a privilege to have you with us here in January of 2021 to discuss so many important issues. Thank you, Jeff. Dr. Malley, I guess the first question is, it, it's, uh, as I mentioned, it's, it, we're, we are recording this January 12th, uh, 2021. Where are we in the pandemic right now? Yeah, we are in a very difficult situation, but with a lot of promise and hope uh, that we can look forward to. The difficult situation is that we are about a year into this pandemic the number of cases across the world and in the U.S. are increasing daily. We have all sorts of morbidity, mortality, and also a very important pandemic fatigue associated with all sorts of health problems, including mental health problems across the world that are really beginning to cause a significant burden on everybody. At the same time, as everybody on your podcast knows, we have the wonderful news of at least three vaccines and more coming along that have shown already to have efficacy against this pandemic. And I think we need now to see what happens as we roll these vaccines out and as we try to perform this race against time where we protect as many people as possible before they can actually get sick from this terrible virus. Can we pick up on that? If there's number one topic in the world right now, it could arguably be vaccines and the state of vaccines. What should we know about where we are with vaccine development and rollout at this time? We have an unprecedented situation where less than a year after a virus was identified, several vaccines were not only conceived, developed, tested, but also authorized against this disease. That is a remarkable feat that nobody really would have expected when the first cases of COVID-19 were identified over a year ago. There are many vaccines that are being developed right now, and I think it helps to think of them in different pots. There are, of course, the nucleic acid vaccines. Typically, we have either mRNA vaccines, such as the ones that have been developed by Pfizer and Moderna. We also have adenoviral vectored vaccines, such as the ones that are being developed, for example, by the Oxford AstraZeneca group. And those two types of platforms are completely new in terms of getting a vaccine into the market. There is currently, there has not been yet any of these vaccines licensed in the world. And so this is a remarkable achievement for these two types of vaccines. Now, a more classic type of vaccine that is also being developed, but we don't have any uh, strong evidence yet of protection, is using a protein formulation where you simply take, for example, in the case of COVID-19, the spike protein of the virus and inject it into the arms of people and try to see if they can develop antibodies to the spike protein. There are many that are in development 
The one that is the closest, we believe, to being able to tell us whether it works is one that is being currently evaluated by Novavax in the United States. And then we have other forms of vaccines that are being evaluated as well. These are, for example, a killed preparation of the virus. For example, Valneva is developing such a vaccine and is currently being tested, for example, in the United Kingdom. These vaccines are more traditional vaccines that have been used in the past for other diseases. In the case of COVID-19 and in the case of pediatrics, these vaccines pose an interesting scientific problem because as you know, COVID-19 in children is a disease that tends to be milder, but in rare cases, but a very important cases, it can be associated with an inflammatory syndrome called MISC, the cause of which is not yet really understood. And there is some concern that these killed whole viral vaccines could in theory potentially trigger the same type of immune response that might be responsible for MISC. So of all the vaccines that I have listed, the ones that might be a little bit less applicable to the pediatric population, at least in theory, are the ones that use the whole virus. Well, Dr. Malley, could we talk uh, a little more detail about the three vaccines that have received emergency use authorization throughout the world? What should we know about them? Well, we know quite a bit, but there's still a lot to be learned about these vaccines. What we know is that in general, these three vaccines have shown to be effective at preventing mild to moderate COVID-19 disease in recipients. We know that these vaccines have been currently administered in a two-dose regimen, and that it appears that even after one dose, we start seeing some excellent protection, the duration of which is unknown. The second thing we know about these vaccines is that they seem to be very safe and well-tolerated by the individuals who have received them, so that they do not seem to have a concerning safety profile. But this, of course, is based on the tens of thousands of recipients, and we need, of course, to continue to monitor the safety of these vaccines as they get rolled out into millions of people. So specifically, if we look at the three vaccines that have been subject so far to authorization, the first one is the Pfizer mRNA vaccine, which was uh, uh, developed in collaboration with BioNTech in Germany. And this is an mRNA vaccine that was shown to prevent mild to moderate disease in recipients. And also it appears prevented severe disease, although that was not the main goal of the clinical trial. It just seems that the individuals who received this vaccine were less likely to develop severe disease, which of course is very reassuring. This vaccine was the first one to receive emergency use authorization as is currently being rolled out in the United States and in other countries. The second one is the Moderna vaccine, which is based on the same principle, but is a, a different variation on the theme of using mRNA. And the results of that trial were very similar to what was seen with the Pfizer vaccine, where essentially both of those vaccines have approaching 95% efficacy which basically means that if you compare people who get placebo to people who get the vaccine, there's a 95% lower likelihood that the individuals who got the vaccine will get COVID-19 mild to moderate disease, which is a remarkable achievement. The third vaccine that is currently being in use mainly in the United Kingdom 
is the Oxford AstraZeneca vaccine, which uses a, a chimpanzee adenovirus that has been engineered to express the spike protein of SARS-CoV-2, the causative agent of COVID-19. This vaccine has unfortunately been a little bit plagued by complications in the phase three clinical trial. At one point, the manufacturer of the vaccine moved from one site to another. And in that process, there was a mistake made in the quantification of how much vaccine was actually in the vial as it was being now produced for phase three clinical trials. The investigators noticed after about 10% of the vaccinees had received the AstraZeneca vaccine or the placebo, they noticed that there was a lower rate of side effects than they had seen in prior earlier phases of the trials. And they quickly realized the mistake that had been made and that in fact, the initial 10% of the volunteers had received half the dose that was intended. When the trial was then continued, the regulators essentially said, give the full dose to any new volunteer and complete the second dose of those who had inadvertently received half the dose with also a full dose known as a standard dose. When the trial was unblinded, they noticed an overall efficacy of about 70% against mild to moderate COVID-19 disease. But when they did a sub-analysis, they actually found that the individuals who had received the standard dose twice had about 63% efficacy, but those who had received the low dose followed by the standard dose had 90% efficacy. This was very puzzling and difficult to explain. More recently, post hoc analyses are suggesting that in fact, the reason for this difference in efficacy had less to do with the dose of the vaccine and more to do with an increased interval between first and second dose. And it turns out that the individuals who received the low dose followed by the standard dose had on average a greater interval between the two injections. And when the investigators then looked at the standard dose group, those who had received standard dose twice, they also found that individuals who had received the second dose later had a significantly higher antibody response to the spike protein. And therefore it is now believed uh, that perhaps a longer interval between the first and second dose might be the best way to immunize with the Oxford AstraZeneca vaccine. Dr. Malley, um, you know, we've talked so far about the three vaccines used in the West through an emergency use authorization, but of course, there are other vaccines that are being deployed and tested throughout the world. What can you tell us about them? There are indeed a lot of other vaccines that are currently being used across the world. One of the first ones that was announced to be effective, although the data were not shared, is the so-called Sputnik uh, vaccine from Russia, which uses a combination of two adenoviral vectors, adenovirus 26 and adenovirus 5. Uh, this vaccine uh, was approved for early use in Russia. It was approved for emergency use in Belarus and in other countries. And now, interestingly, this vaccine is being evaluated in combination with the AstraZeneca vaccine as a potential way to try to enhance efficacy. This vaccine is very interesting because it could be uh, distributed at low cost. It does not require you know, refrigeration like the Moderna or the Pfizer vaccine, the very intense cold conditions that those two vaccines require. 
But unfortunately, we do not see the data yet being published. And it's very difficult to know what to make of statements about efficacy for a vaccine when the data are not shared. Similarly, uh, there have been quite a bit of vaccines that have been developed in China, for example. There's a, a pharmaceutical company called CanSino that has developed an adenoviral vector. This vaccine is in limited use in China, but so far no efficacy data uh, have, been, have been shared with, uh, with anybody. There's uh, Sinovac, another Chinese vaccine that was uh, in, in using an inactivated viral uh, approach. Uh, and this vaccine uh, is now being reported as having had efficacy in Brazil, but the range of efficacies that you can read in the press range from 87 to 60 or less percent efficacy, which of course, you know, whatever the number is, we would like to know and see the data. Um, there are also quite a few efforts in India that use different technologies. And I think it is incumbent on the scientific community and on public health regulators to demand that these data be shared so that we can have a better picture of what all these different alternatives offer, not just for the country where they are being developed, but worldwide. Because as we all know, this is a pandemic that is affecting every corner of the globe. We absolutely need to have a very large supply of vaccines to try to compl uh, completely control this pandemic. And having lots of options is a good thing as long as we know what these options actually do in terms of efficacy and safety. Dr. Malley, um, you know better than most that these two mRNA vaccines aren't suitable throughout the world. And indeed, your research has been supported by the Gates Foundation because you've come up with a novel vaccine platform development tool that may actually help accelerate the uh, development and distribution of vaccines throughout the world. So can you talk to us about the WHO initiative, COVAX? Because clearly these mRNA vaccines by their necessary distribution uh, needs can't address that issue. Yeah, the you know currently as they're formulated, these vaccines are really not applicable to areas of the world where they, we don't have you know freezers or even the capacity to keep a very intense cold chain. For that reason, as well as the very important reason of making sure that vaccines are distributed with equity across the world, a group consisting of the Coalition for Epidemic Preparedness, otherwise known as CEPI the WHO and also the Global Alliance for Vaccine created this uh, consortium called COVAX, whose goal is the development and manufacture acceleration of COVID-19 vaccines with the idea that the only way and the most ethical and moral way to combat this pandemic is to make sure that whatever vaccines we are developing and whatever strategies we are using to fight the scourge can be done equitably across the world. And so COVAX is currently in the process of funding several efforts to try to make sure that these vaccines that are being developed, if they are applicable to the developing world, could in fact be available to those countries and also encouraging the acceleration of different programs to ensure that the vaccines that are being tested and developed could actually find their way into the poorest uh, countries of the world. Uh, Dr. Malley, um, given the, the urgent need to get a vaccine distributed throughout the world to all peoples, no matter where they live, 
Uh, what do we know about, and in particular, the three that have re received emergency use authorization in the West? Of the three vaccines, the one developed by Oxford AstraZeneca is in fact the one that would be the most directly applicable to all countries across the globe because it is a highly stable vaccine. It does not require the intense refrigeration that currently the mRNA vaccines require. And it can also very importantly be produced at very low cost, much lower cost than the mRNA vaccines that are currently authorized. This is of extreme importance given the scope of the pandemic, the number of countries that need vaccines, and also the fact that ultimately we need a commitment by vaccine manufacturers to deliver these vaccines under global access requirements, which AstraZeneca has already agreed to. And the reason for this is, of course, a humanitarian reason. There's disease across the globe, and we should really try to control it as best we can. But also, and this is something that should give even more ammunition to try to get global access provisions to any vaccine that is shown to be efficacious. It is in everybody's interest to make sure that this disease is controlled everywhere, because even if the West has very good vaccine uptake and efficacy, this disease will only be controlled in the West if it is also controlled everywhere. And this means that we are in this together, rich and poor countries alike, North and South alike, and we should stop thinking of vaccines for the US, vaccines for Europe, and really consider that this is a humanitarian goal to achieve broad immunization for all. Uh, Dr. Malley, I think most of our listeners are well aware of the uh, novel mRNA technology that's being used now by two of the vaccines under emergency use authorization, the Pfizer BioNTech mRNA vaccine uh, approved and the uh, Moderna mRNA vaccine that's been approved. They report really remarkable efficacy rates from their phase three trial. But of course, that's not a head-to-head -head trial with the more uh, traditional vector approach vaccine platforms such as used by AstraZeneca and Oxford. Are those significant differences? What should we know about the efficacy as it's been measured and reported in the scientific literature to date? Yeah, you raise an excellent point, which is that in general, it's a little risky to start looking at trials that are conducted in different settings with different criteria and try to judge whether one vaccine is uh, superior, equal, or inferior to another. I think that in general, what's, what's fair to say is that all the three vaccines that are currently authorized have excellent efficacy against COVID-19. One big question that needs to be asked about all three vaccines is how durable is the protection? Because by definition, a phase three clinical trial has to stop at some point, and we have to adjudicate at that point, what is the efficacy? And in the case of the Pfizer, Moderna, or AstraZeneca vaccines, they were predefined criteria as to when they would unblind the study, which were essentially based on how many cases they would see. And ultimately that resulted in a little bit over half of the recipients having received their second dose at least two months prior. So the duration of protection that we have seen in these phase three clinical trials is not extensive. And what will become very important in evaluating all of these vaccines is not only the efficacy estimate that we can come up with, but also how durable that efficacy is. And, and that is a critical question once we start thinking of how to control this pandemic.
Dr. Malley, you've been studying uh, these issues for really several decades. You've written about this most recently in the New York Times. What do we know, first of all, about the ability of these vaccines to prevent transmission of disease? And secondly, what do we know about efficacy? You mentioned that the studies were really designed to demonstrate uh, efficacy against mild to moderate disease. What do we know about the efficacy of the three vaccines already approved through the emergency use authorization process in terms of their ability to prevent severe disease, and in particular, across the age spectrum, race spectrum, et cetera? These are two very important questions that will really help us understand how we can get rid of this uh, virus or at least reduce its, its impact as much as possible. The, the first question you ask about transmission is absolutely critical. The, the best vaccines that have ever been uh, licensed in the world are those that actually not only protect the individual, but even more importantly, many times actually prevent the ability of one individual from infecting another. And the, the audience knows, of course, of the remarkable impact of the Haemophilus influenzae conjugate vaccine, of the pneumococcal conjugate vaccines. And these vaccines, for example, have a enormous impact, not only on the individual, but also by preventing spread. In the case of COVID-19, the vaccines that have been uh, authorized so far have only evaluated this question in a limited way. We have some preclinical data based on non-human primate studies that would suggest that these vaccines might actually interfere with the ability of the virus to infect even asymptomatically and just land on the nose and stay on the nose for subsequent transmission. These are non-human primate studies. They don't necessarily translate into efficacy, of course, in humans, but they are promising. And so right now, the phase three clinical trials that, we, that we've all seen have not really done a huge evaluation of this question, but two of them have tried so far to look at this. One of them is the Moderna vaccine trial, which had the very clever idea at swabbing the noses of 14,000 recipients of the vaccine and 14,000 placebo recipients. So they basically did this randomly over about 28,000 individuals at the time of their second visit when they came for their second vaccine. So they swabbed the noses of, of these individuals and evaluated whether they could find the virus by PCR amplification of the nasal secretions. And what they found, and this again was not the main purpose of the study, but a very important secondary evaluation, was that they, they found about 0.3% in the placebo recipients were positive for virus and 0.1% in the vaccine recipients. So, you know, about a two thirds reduction, which is of course, if this is the actual efficacy against infection, a remarkable feat reducing transmission by reducing infection by two thirds would really be a remarkable feat. But of course, these are small percentages, 0.3, 0.1%. It needs to be evaluated more thoroughly and um, we, all we can say at this moment is that this is a very satisfying clue that this particular vaccine might interfere with transmission. In the AstraZeneca Oxford trial, they took a subgroup of vaccine or placebo recipients and asked these individuals to swab their noses at weekly intervals. So this was an even more thorough evaluation. It did not involve a very large number 
of individuals. But what they did find was in the uh, low dose standard dose group, they found about a 60% reduction in positive nasal swab. Again, these are small numbers. We need to evaluate this formally, but this would be, of course, a very promising uh, result if it gets confirmed in a larger trial. Now, to get to your question about severe disease, this was not the primary outcome of any of these trials. And the practical reason why it was not the, the primary outcome is that you would have to do an enormous study in order to uh, reach statistical significance based on the frequency of not only COVID-19 disease, but also severe disease. However, in all of the three trials that we are discussing, they found that the vaccine recipients were less likely to have severe disease than placebo recipients. And uh, this was seen in all three studies. It's very promising and suggests that these three vaccines not only prevent mild to moderate disease, but might also reduce the severity of illness if an individual is going to get sick with COVID-19. Dr. Malley, final question, of course, for everyone in the audience wondering, when will the uh, studies be done in children on uh, the efficacy of a vaccine uh, in the pediatric population? I think they're being planned right now as we speak. We, uh, we know that uh, the Moderna and the Pfizer vaccines are being evaluated in younger children and adolescents right now. For example, the Pfizer vaccine has, is enrolling individuals between the ages of 12 and 16 for this purpose. Once those studies are done and hopefully show good safety and immunogenicity, uh, we would expect that lower ages will be included so that ultimately we would have a very good idea of how safe and how immunogenic these vaccines are in children we will probably not be doing uh, efficacy trials in children because the, the numbers would, would of course be enormous, but at least knowledge about safety and immunogenicity will be very important in terms of deciding if and when we should roll out these vaccines in the pediatric population. Well, Dr. Richard Malley, uh, Senior Physician in the Division of Infectious Disease at Boston Children's Hospital and Professor of Pediatrics at Harvard Medical School, and Gates Foundation funded investigator on the uh, development of vaccines that could be applicable around the world. It's been a pleasure having you speak with us today, and we thank you for sharing your knowledge with colleagues around the world. My pleasure.